0: Well, in John chapter 5, as you know, we've been studying John chapter 5. In John 5, we find John's strongest argument for the deity of Christ. His argument begins with the third sign or miracle recorded in the book. And this is the healing of a paralyzed man. We studied this miracle three weeks ago. And although this man was paralyzed for 38 years, Jesus only had to say, get up. Take up your bed and walk for the man to be healed. There's a lot to learn from such a miracle. This miracle teaches us something about how God sees humanity and what, we might, what might be required of those who desire to follow Him. It was in a place where the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed were found that we saw Jesus was found. And it was there Jesus healed a man, not of immeasurable faith— But of irresolute faith. Although the man man was undecided, Jesus, you remember if you're with us, was decided. John tells us Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had been there a long time. He put his eyes on him and knew all of this and, of course, went to him and healed him. And it was the healing of this man that would get Jesus in trouble. If the paralyzed man was an irresolute supporter... The Jews were irreverent spectators. They looked, but they failed to see. As amazing as the sign was, they were hung up on the red tape. This miracle was performed on the Sabbath, and seeing their interpretation of the law as priority, they failed to submit to the one who would fulfill the law. And Jesus, for his part, isn't irresolute. Having healed on the Sabbath, he declared, My father is working until now, and I am working. Without a doubt, this is a claim of deity. Proof is found in the Jewish response to those words in John 5.18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Two weeks ago... We learned that Jesus doesn't evade the charge of being equal with God. Jesus steps right into the charge and argues in verses 19 through 29 that he is equal to God in nature, in works, and in honor. He's equal in nature because he sees what the Father is doing and he only does what the Father does. He's equal in works because he has the power, you remember, to give spiritual life the power to judge, and the power to resurrect the dead. And he's equal in honor because he can receive accolades only due to God himself. Jesus says all of this to argue that he is, as we've been arguing and saying, he is equal with God. And although his argument continues through the end of this chapter, he does change directions in verses 30 through 47, our passage this morning. In 19 through 29, he was revealing the ways in which he is equal with the Father. As we've said, his essential nature in the things that he does, his works and the honor that he is due. All these features, these aspects or characteristics that demonstrate that Jesus is equal with God. But we'll see where he wants to take his argument in verse 31. Chapter 5, verse 31 says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, in saying this, Jesus isn't implying that his self-witness is unreliable. He's not saying that. Jesus will actually say in John 8:14, "Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true." It seems Jesus has every every right to bear witness about himself because he is God. That being said, his opponents wouldn't have viewed his self-testimony as, or they would have viewed his self-testimony as insufficient. The concern that Jesus addresses is obvious. If anyone makes a claim, we look for multiple voices. A claim cannot be true unless it's confirmed by multiple witnesses. The Scriptures confirm this. Deuteronomy 17, 6, we are taught that capital punishment is to be administered on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In the case of church discipline, Jesus instructs us to go to our brother to confirm the charge, and a charge isn't to be received against an elder unless it's supported again by two or three witnesses. Therefore, in our passage this morning, Jesus accepts the the standard regulation of justice, and he calls forth four witnesses to verify that he is equal to God, which is our big idea this morning. Four witnesses verify that Jesus is equal to God. Now, before Jesus calls his witnesses, and, and don't worry, we will stand and read Scripture in a moment, uh, before Jesus calls his first witness, notice in verse 30, Jesus reiterates what he's already said in verse 19, namely, I can do nothing on my own, or I can do nothing of, on my own accord in verse 19. Jesus said, uh, again, he is equal with the Father. Uh, Excuse me, let me try that again. But before Jesus calls his first witness, notice in verse 30, he reiterates what he's already said in 19, I can do nothing on my own. Again, he is equal with the Father. From his nature to the work of judgment, Jesus seeks and functions within the will of God. He can operate from no other place. And this is confirmed by the Father in verse 32 which says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he's, he bears about me is true. Jesus is speaking here about the inner witness he has from the Father. Jesus said in verse 19 that he only does what he sees the Father doing, and in verse 20, he says the Father shows him what he is doing. Now here, verse 32, he is saying there is another Who bears witness about me? And I know that what he says about me, that is about Jesus, is true. This verse sets up a theme in this passage. We'll see it emerge as we move forward. It's a kind of a sub theme. I'll introduce it now. I'll draw it out in more detail later. The theme is this Jesus prizes the praise of the Father. Jesus prizes the praise of the Father. At the outset Jesus wants us to know that the Father has priority. For all the witnesses that Jesus will call forth, none are more prized than his Father. In fact, truthfully, none is needed or none are needed. Jesus is not dependent on what others think of him. In some ways, after verse 32, Jesus could have said the defense rests. He, couldn't have, he, he could have called for a verdict, and I think understanding this gives us some insight into the ethos or the, the spirit or the, the motivating force behind the calling of these witnesses. Although the words of Jesus are direct, His purposes are rooted in love. We shouldn't move too far or move our thinking too far from John 3:17, which says... For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. In John 5:24, "Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Thus, it's a great privilege that our Lord didn't allow His defense to rest after verse 32. Although his audience plots to kill him, with great patience, Jesus calls forth witnesses to help his opponents see, see him for all that he is. And who is he? He's the Son of God. He is Lord. If you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus is Lord, that Christ is God. As I mentioned three weeks ago, this, this is necessary for salvation. Romans 10, 9, says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, well, you'll be saved. It's necessary, uh, to, uh, necessary to believe in that Jesus is Lord to be saved. I trust you believe that. However, I think oftentimes there are aspects of our life in which Jesus is not Lord. We have a, a right orthodoxy, but we have a wrong orthopraxy. You might ask the question this way. Is Jesus Lord in my speech? Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Is Jesus Lord in my workplace? Proverbs 11.1 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. Is Jesus Lord in your heart? Well, Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What do you treasure? I think if you want to know what you treasure, you ask yourself two questions. What do I spend my money on? And where do I spend my time? I think oftentimes these two questions will reveal where our heart is or what we treasure now, there's a pitfall, and we must avoid this pitfall when reading Scripture, particularly when Jesus is confronting his opposition. The pitfall is this. We quite naturally see ourselves on his, on Jesus' defense team. And, of course, we are. Yet this tendency can be used to kind of bob and weave our way through the text. We, we accept the ointment of orthodoxy, but we avoid the obstacle of orthopraxy. Therefore, it's my hope that as Jesus calls forth these witnesses, as he calls the the witnesses to the bench, we might be open to the idea that Jesus has something new to teach us. Of course, I believe you're more than open to that idea. I believe you're quite willing, in fact, eager for Jesus to teach us something new this morning. So, let us then hear from these witnesses With heart and hand open to the Lord's instruction and teaching, for as you know, all Scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Would you then stand for the reading of God's Word? John 5, verses 30 through 47. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear... I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent." The first witness that Jesus calls is John the Baptist. We saw that in verse 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. And in verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Remember John 1:7. He came as a witness, that is John, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 28, the Jews sent a delegation to John. It was at that time John declared that his mission was to prepare the way for the coming of Messiah. Later on in that chapter, John publicly identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Spirit-anointed Son of God. John the Baptist declared from the witness stand, Christ is equal to God. Jesus is Lord. John was a very significant witness because, as Jesus says in verse 35, the Jews rejoiced in him. Psalm 132, verses 16 and 17 says, Zion's priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. I assume these Jews felt very privileged to be a part of such a generation where there hadn't been a prophet in Israel in some 400 years. And now a prophet had come. He had declared that Messiah was on his way. Certainly there was much to rejoice in. Both the psalmist and Jesus saw John as a lamp. Of course, we know that a lamp is not self-sufficient. Its power is derived. It must be lit by another We know that John was empowered by God and was able to give light through an an unwavering testimony. Yet, we also know that as a lamp burns, it burns itself up. The lamp is exhausted, you might say, by shining. While the Jews certainly did rejoice in John, eventually the light would fade. Their delight in John was, you might say, for a season. The Jews were fickle fans who demonstrated a certain type, who, who uh, demanded, excuse me, a certain type of Messiah. And once it became clear that Jesus was not that Messiah, well, we know, it turned away. And you and I are not above this. We can become fickle fans who demand a certain type of Messiah. Theologians we know have stripped him of supernatural power. They have uh, turned him into a mythology, even erased Him from history. I don't think we're above this. I know I'm not above this. We can become fickle fans who demand a certain type of Messiah. In what ways am I bringing my ideas of Jesus to the Scriptures rather than letting the Scriptures proclaim to me who Jesus is? There's a second, second witness that Jesus calls in verse 36... But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works, Jesus says, that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The witness of works verifies that Christ is equal to God. This is our second witness. We're not surprised at all that Jesus calls this witness forth. The works of Jesus are a central theme of John's gospel. If if you've been paying any attention to the series that we're currently in in John, you know John is not arguing that Jesus is a notable human being. As the purpose statement declares, John is writing so that we will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And his argument is based primarily on the works that Jesus did or the signs as we've seen. That being said... We shouldn't object if, if this witness has more to say. There, there's no reason for us to limit the works of Jesus only to the, those of which that are found in this book. Therefore, the works that verify that Christ is equal to God include every aspect of his ministry, the climax of which would be his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Later in John, we'll see Jesus' enemies wrestle with this witness. John 11, verse 47, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They acknowledged He was captivating. They didn't know what to do with him. You remember the words of Nicodemus. Of course, Nicodemus comes under the cover of night. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. How does John end his biography of Jesus? What's the final verse of the book? Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In simple terms, signs are are miracles. Works are miracles. That's what we're talking about. I like Lewis's simple definition of a miracle, an interference with nature by supernatural power. That's simple. Charles Ryrie writes, a miracle is more than something unusual. A true miracle is something beyond man's intellectual or scientific ability to accomplish. It is not natural. Even though it may be unusual, a miracle is supernatural. It is more than a highly improbable event. It injects a new... Check. Okay, can you hear me? All right. Talking about miracles. Uh, What is the purpose of such things? What is the purpose of a miracle? Well, the purpose of a miracle is to reveal to us something about God, to remind us of the consequences of sin and by the power of our Lord to do something about it. Therefore, I believe it's right for us to stand in amazement At our God. How often do scriptures command us to do such things? Thinking a little bit from the Psalms. Psalm 66 verses 1 through 5. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. I love this verse. Say to God how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deed, deeds toward the children of men. Psalm 145 would be a notable psalm as it relates to God's works and being amazed by his works. They shall speak of the of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness verse 10 all your works shall give thanks to you O Lord they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works verse 17 the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works Up to this point, what works have we seen Jesus do? Well, we've seen him turn water into wine. We've seen him heal an official's son, not standing next to him, but from afar. We've seen Jesus command a paralyzed man to get up, take up your bed, and walk. And next week, Lord willing, if we have amplification, we will see Jesus feed 5,000 with five barley loaves and two small fish. Like the Psalmist of sixty-three, sixty-six three, can you say to God, how awesome are your deeds? Jesus calls a third witness in verse thirty-seven. The witness of the Father verifies that Christ is equal to God. Chapter five, verse thirty-seven. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. I think the most natural question to ask of verse 37 is, in what sense has the Father borne witness to Christ? Some commentators take this as a reference to the baptism of Jesus, you remember in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. A voice came from heaven, you remember that, declared, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus could be referring to his baptism in verse 37, although I do think this suggestion seems a bit odd, as John doesn't record the baptism of Jesus. Others use 1 John 5, verses 9 through 10 to explain the passage, which says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Using this verse Jesus refers to the in- internal witness of the spirit if that's what we think John Jesus is meaning here he's talking about the internal witness of the spirit in the life of the believer in us so he is conv- he is convincing us internally that Jesus is God not a watching world again i think this is a little bit odd because Jesus hasn't referred to this internal testimony uh, anywhere else around this context. And so I think Jesus is probably, or probably has something else in mind. It might be best, I think, to take this uh, as a general reference to all of the Father's works, that from the beginning, the entire revelation of the Father prepared the way for the coming of the Son and Because the enemies of Jesus don't see this revelation from the Father. They are not in line with the very heritage, even their religion. That is the religion that they claim. In fact, their ignorance, Jesus explains, is threefold. First, he says, they have never heard God's voice. They don't have God's voice. Now, they claim to be disciples of Moses, but they are not. You know Moses heard God's voice. You remember Exodus 33:11. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But these men have never heard God's voice, which means they are not hearing the voice of Moses, which testifies of Jesus. As it turns out, Moses will be their accuser, as we see at the end of the passage. They have not heard God's voice, and they have not seen God's form Although they claimed Jacob as their father, they were not true Israelites. It was Jacob who saw God's form. You remember that in Genesis thirty-two thirty. I have seen God face to face he says. Since Jesus is the very manifestation of God and these Jews do not see God in Jesus, well they are not true Israelites. There's one other thing he, he says. They don't they haven't heard God's voice. They haven't seen God's form. And third, they don't have his abiding word. Although they looked up to Joshua, they were unable to follow Joshua's charge concerning the word. You remember Joshua says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success, Joshua eight. Nor were they like the psalmist who declared in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Since Jesus is the very word of God, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God, John 1.1, and the Jews rejected him, it follows that they have no part in the blessings that Joshua promised nor the experience the psalmist offers. Neither are theirs. We've been reading through the book of Hebrews as a church. You remember the very first two verses of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, it says, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, though whom he also, through whom, excuse me, also he created the world What God has been saying, what he has been doing through men like Moses and uh, Jacob and Joshua and others, the psalmist, is all pressing forward to something better, a kind of supreme revelation. And that supreme revelation is the Son. It's Jesus. What I believe Jesus is saying in verse 37 and 38 is that failure to believe in him proves that whatever knowledge, whatever understanding a person has of God, it's faulty. A person cannot rightly understand the revelation of God and not see Jesus as the crown jewel. I'm sure you're like me. You have felt that God is sometimes far off, that he is distant. Maybe God is is like a ship out in the distance, and he's so far off in the horizon, you you know it's a ship out there, but you can't make out the details. It's elusive, you might say. With a ship so far off, God so far away, we're prone to worry. Not only that, but the lure of sin grows with God so far off. I suspect Adam and Eve wouldn't have eaten the fruit had God been standing next to them. If Jesus can say that a person is without the voice and form of God and that his words don't dwell in those who don't believe in him, well, then the opposite is true. If we believe in Jesus, then we have the voice of God. Then we have the form of God and that his words have found a dwelling place in us. This means that although God may seem far off, he is in port. He is not elusive. He is crystal clear. You might say he's in plain sight. Psalm 34, 8. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 16, verses 7 and 9. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. When you and I are tempted, when we feel like God is out to sea, Fight for your faith with this. Friends, we have the voice of God. We have the form of God. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit in God's indwelling word and his spirit. This they didn't have. All of this is true because we have Jesus. So we have heard from the witness of John the Baptist Uh, The witness of works and the witness of the Father. There's one other witness. The fourth witness that Jesus calls to verify that he is equal to God is the witness of Scripture. Look at verses 39 through 44. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but i know that you do not have the love of god within you i have come in my father's name and you do how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only god it wasn't that the jewish leaders didn't study scripture jesus affirms himself you search the scriptures these leaders were fastidious about scripture This led to all kinds of uh, eclectic behavior. You've probably heard some of this. Each letter of the Hebrew alphabet was given a number, and therefore each word had a numerical equivalent, which meant each line formed a kind of mathematical equation. You could look at all the the letters and add it up and make sure that it was correct by the, the number that it formed. They numbered the center line of each line of Scripture, the center letter of each book, and the center letter in the Old Testament. In the actual copying of a text... The scribe was not permitted to write more than one letter before looking back at the text. So you can imagine writing your name, J, to look back, O, to look back, A, you can imagine how long it would take if you have to look for every single letter. Of course, all these quirky uh, rituals are wonderful for us because they result in an incredibly accurate text. God used that for his good and for our good, you might say. But all of this does point to a problem. They thought, if I could say this, they thought too much of Scripture. Notice Jesus says they thought that in them, that is the Scriptures, they had eternal life. These religious leaders saw the care and the study of Scriptures as the means of salvation. They measured their access to God by their appreciation of Scripture. Barclay writes... They did not take themselves to Scripture. They brought Scripture to themselves. Let me illustrate it this way. I'm sure you've been to the Griffith Observatory. Most of you have probably been been there. Well, Let's say you went to the observatory and they recently did a remodel of that place. And you're making your way through the, the rooms and you notice something quite odd. Every exhibit is focused on some element of the observatory. You learn uh, how the different telescopes and the mechanisms that control them. You learn how their state-of-the-art planetarium was constructed. Having spent an hour or so looking around, you realize that the observatory is missing the point. What is the point of an observatory? Well, the point of an observatory is to tell us what's out there. If an observatory can't tell me what's out there, then the observatories miss the point, and it's, well, useless. And I might argue that the Griffith Observatory is almost more about the observatory than it is about space, but that's my argument. Well, in, in the Scriptures, of course, we have the most amazing observatory, but we must look through the telescope in order to see Christ. What is your approach to Scripture? And of spiritual things. Now, of course, there is a tension here. We ought to be people of the book, and we are here at Rosedale. We are definitely people of the book. We ought to have a high view of Scripture. We ought to hunger for God's Word. Yet, we must, we must not focus too much on its form and frame. We must look beyond these things and look to Christ. Because, as Jesus says, the scriptures bear witness to him. At this point, I do want to return to a theme that I introduced earlier. You might remember that. You remember I made the point in verse 32 that Jesus prizes the praise of the Father. Well, it's this theme that emerges in verses 41 through 44 when Jesus says, interestingly, I do not receive glory from people. He's putting himself in contrast to those who seek to, verse 44, receive glory from one another. Jesus isn't seeking the praises of men. That is, he's not seeking to please men. He's not a man pleaser. Jesus seeks the glory that comes from the only God. And this is what sets Jesus at odds with these men. Jesus had a a different motive. His motive was to seek the glory of God, and their motive was as he says, to seek the glory of men. And this would even lead them to follow false messiahs. Jesus says in verse 43, if anyone comes in his own name, you'll receive him. And as it is, history, re, history records, Josephus and others record 63 pretenders around this time that earned some kind of following. So, We have here four witnesses Jesus gives us. We have John the Baptist. We have the works of Jesus. We have the Father. And we have Scripture. But before the defense rests, Jesus has a closing argument. Look at verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. On whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? As it turns out, in the final day, Jesus won't be pressing charges or prosecuting the Jews, Moses will be the accuser. Even more, Moses is their accuser. Jesus uses the present tense. As I mentioned already, if there's anything these Jews believed in, it was Moses and his writings. They fought for the law. They revered the name of Moses. They were ready to die for what Moses taught. Yet, here is the Messiah, Jesus, declaring that they don't believe Moses. And why? Because if they had really believed Moses they would believe Christ because as Jesus says he wrote of me think we think with me for a moment about the case that Jesus has laid before us Jesus called John the Baptist to the stand who testified that Messiah was coming Jesus called his undeniable works to the stand Jesus called the Father to the stand, who from the beginning has set forth Messiah as the supreme revelation. And Jesus calls the specific witness of Scripture, which testifies of him. And now here, as Jesus closes his appeal, he appeals to Moses and says, He wrote of me. It's natural for us to look down on Jesus' opponents These are the people that would put him to death, as 5.18 says. They were seeking all the more to kill him. In this way, we're tempted to rejoice when Jesus, you might say, runs up the score. I think it's helpful to remember these words from Jesus are delivered with love. Look again at verse 34. Jesus said, Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In all of this, Jesus isn't trying to win an argument. Jesus, If Jesus is stern, he's not trying to silence these men or demonstrate how clever he is. Jesus is calling these witnesses because he loves these men and he wants to save them. Barclay comments on the words of Jesus, quote, He never tried to bludgeon men into silence. His voice might be stern, but in the sternness, there was still the accent of yearning love. His eyes might flash fire, but the flame was the flame of love. End quote. The Jews of Jesus' day, his opponents, had the greatest of privilege. They heard the words of John. They saw the works of Jesus. They shared their world with the, with the Messiah, they had such a profound love for the Father and the Scriptures. They should have easily seen the, f- the face of Jesus on the pages of Scripture. But their greatest privilege became their greatest condemnation. And the greater the privilege, the greater the condemnation. For the more chances we have to know, the more we are condemned if we fail to know. Responsibility is always the other side of privilege. So what is our privilege? We have the sworn testimony testimony of John. We've seen the evidence of Jesus' miracles. We can look back and see the fulfillment of Scripture in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Son. And even more than Jesus' opponents, you and I have the gift of the Holy Spirit. I've said that John 5 gives us the strongest argument for the deity of Christ. I confess that might be an overstatement. But it's true that in this chapter we have the evidence for, the claims of, and the witness to this fact. Jesus is equal to God. Jesus is Lord. How has this chapter affected the way you think about Christ? How has the privilege of these chapters affected your responsibility to Christ? What is the verdict? I want to leave you with Psalm 2. And since I experienced an awkward moment this morning, I'll ask you to stand. I'm going to read Psalm 2. And then when I'm done, Joel, you can come up and lead us in a song. Why do the nations rage and all the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I trust your verdict will concur with the evidence. Jesus is equal with God.